If you have your Bibles, you can open them with me tonight to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, Tonight we're going to look at the first 10 verses of 2 Corinthians 12. And uh, I'm going to give an illustration here at the beginning that's going to give away the entire sermon. Um, But that's okay because it will help us as we sort of think through this. The sermon tonight is God's purpose uh, in suffering, God's purpose in our suffering. Um, before we left to come here tonight, uh, we were sitting around in the living room and we I was finishing watching uh, just a little bit of golf. I got to see who won and, and all of that. And I heard the dog out in the front yard. And uh, I've seen him at this particular tree um, before. It's a small little dogwood tree, not very tall at all. And Moses, uh, our probably 100-pound uh, flat coat retriever, is uh, stretching with all of his length to get up into this tree and uh, barking his head off. I mean, just bark, 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 you know, just really going after it. Well, Micaiah goes out to check it out and see what's going on. Come to find out, just out of Moses' reach is a bird's nest right there in the limbs. And uh, as Micaiah began to investigate a little further, he could see in that nest at least one, I don't know how many you saw at first, but at least one little head poking up out of that bird's nest. And uh, so he came in and he said, Moses is about to get these birds. There's baby birds in this nest. So we all went out as a family. It was a field trip from that moment on. And we all went out to the front yard. And uh, we, we began to look and we began to count. And we could see one head. No, there's two. Oh, wait, I see three. And we saw three little heads, you know. Uh, Huey, Dewey, and is it Louie? Yeah. yeah, up there in the, in the nest, you know, with those, their mouths stretched wide open. Uh, couldn't really hear them saying much, calling out or anything like that, but they were obviously straining their necks, opening their mouth. I began to lift up the kids to see a little, little more, and uh, we were trying to see what was going on. And all the while, Moses is at the bottom, and he's trying desperately to get to these birds. If you look, if you were to turn, we began to question, well, where's, where's the mama? And we turned and we looked, and there's a Leland Cypress just over on the other side of the house, just probably uh, 20 yards away. And up at the very, very top of this probably 30 or 40 foot, probably 30 feet high tree, with just bending over is Mama Bird, and she's there, and she's teetering at the top of this thing, and she's keeping an eye on Huey, Dewey, and Louie in the nest, and keeping an eye on, on Moses trying to get to those. Well, the illustration is this. You're going to see in this passage tonight that we are not the bird at the top of the Leland Cypress, nor are we Moses. We are those babies. We are Huey, Dewey, and Louie in that nest, helpless as we can be. And we sometimes, in our own strength, fool ourselves into thinking that, hey, we got this. I mean, if, if one of those little birds in that nest got full of himself and stuck his bird chest out and said, I got this, that dog is nothing and he decides to jump out of that nest, I can tell you what's going to happen. Moses will have a snack in two seconds flat. And so I want you to see in that illustration tonight what you're going to see in this passage. You and I are helpless, and we are dependent, 
that we sometimes get full of ourselves and think that we have got this all the while we have an enemy down below that is trying to steal, kill, and destroy. He's trying to keep as many people out of heaven into hell as he possibly can. And he will do everything he can to bark and scratch and claw and get at us. But we must continually look toward and strain our necks toward the one who is perched high up in the tree watching us. So let's look at our passage tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I want us to look at this tonight, and I want us simply to walk through this passage. This is not one that will will just give itself to this clever, very organized outline. But I want to show you tonight at least five things in this passage. We'll walk through them fairly quickly. First of all, boasting is pointless even if it is well-founded. Boasting is pointless even if it is well-founded. That's what he he says here. Paul says in verse 1, I must go on boasting. And then he says, even though there's nothing to be gained from it. So why is he boasting? Well, Paul here, in this particular context, with this group of believers, he's writing to the church at Corinth, he is forced into boasting because they are giving particular attention to these false apostles, or what they're called in verse 11, super apostles, who are tooting their own horn. They are claiming all sorts of things. They are claiming that they are having all of these special revelations and visions and the people in the church at Corinth are giving more ear to them than they are to the actual word of God. And Paul here says, then I must go on boasting because you have forced me to this place, even though there is nothing to be gained from it. It's not unlike some today. We joked this morning about missing the rapture that was predicted by Harold Camping. Um, this it was supposed to happen yesterday at 6 o'clock in the evening. Uh, this is not the first time this has happened. Um, my 
daughter and, and my wife had a conversation yesterday about all this and how there have been people throughout history who have thought they knew when and where and how and all this sort of thing. And the reality is Scripture never tells us. In fact, Jesus said that it is not for man to know. He even said that it was appointed by the Father and that not even the Son knows the hour. So here is another one in a long list. It goes all the way back to March 21st, 1844. Uh, William Miller and his Adventist followers, known as the Millerites, believed that Christ would return on March 21st, 1844. It went on, and in the 1970s, many of you can remember that there were multiple predictions of when it would happen. And all throughout history, there have been men and women who have claimed to have some sort of special revelation. And what do we do? We do exactly what those believers in Corinth were doing, is we tend to perk up and give them extra listening. We believe that, well, maybe it's true. Maybe they have had special revelation. Well, Paul here says, that's why I must go on boasting. And he goes on and he begins to boast. His boasting was well-founded and it was certainly impressive. There was no one that had more to boast about or that could really flaunt what God had done in his life more than the Apostle Paul, formerly Saul, persecutor of the church, holder of cloaks when they stoned Stephen. Nobody could boast more than Paul did. But without even going into all of that, he begins to talk about something that he has never talked about before. He begins to relay that he also would go to revelations and visions and that 14 years ago, a man in Christ, he is so wanting to be disassociated with boasting that he won't even refer to himself here. He says, I know a man, a man in Christ, who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven, was caught up into paradise. And Paul here, if anybody can boast, Paul can boast. He's talking about himself, but he won't name himself. He's caught up into the third heaven. This is a reference to the different layers of the atmosphere. That there is the layer of the atmosphere where you and I can see the birds fly, the clouds float around here and there. Then there's the second heaven, which refers to the, the place where the stars and the moon and the different planets are all arranged and hung on their space by God himself. And then the third heaven is referred to as the very place of God. It is the abode of God. It is where God resides. It's what he's also referring to when he says, I was caught up, or this man was caught up into paradise. The word paradise is the same word used to talk about the Garden of Eden, in other places, and if you'll think back, as I studied this, I couldn't help but to think that when, when the Garden of Eden was referred to as paradise, God himself would come and walk in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve there in that place. And so Paul here, when he's boasting, he says, I know a man who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven, into paradise itself. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. This is, this is how amazing this was is he wasn't even sure if he was in his body or if he was somehow transported out of his body and taken into the presence of God in paradise. He doesn't know. He'll leave that up to God. If, if anybody can boast, this is a pretty good boast. Now, what would we do? If I come in here tonight and say to you, um, 
This afternoon, you won't believe what happened. I was out in the yard. I was looking up. Huey, Dewey, and Louie were in the nest. And then all of a sudden, I was transported into heaven. (laughs) What would you say? Um, You should have taken a nap this afternoon, you know, something, you know. But we would, we would either say he is absolutely crazy or Lifeway would be beating down his doors to give him a book deal. And out of that book deal would come t-shirts, you know. T-shirts would come out, I saw heaven but I can't talk about it, you know. And, and there'd be VBS themes, you know. All the kids would be wearing these, you know, special t-shirts, you know. And they'd be doing like rapture practice, you know, jumping, at, you know, in, in VBS and all. I mean, that's, that's what we would do. We would, we would so sell this thing and market this thing and give it so much attention because this is someone who has a special position with God. And Paul here, for 14 years, remains silent about this. Doesn't say a word. This event, 14 years before, predates the existence of the Corinthian church. It predates his first missionary journey. So when he went to Corinth and was seeing this church birthed, don't you think that you and I, if we were planning this church there and wanting to see it grow, don't you think maybe you would use that? I think I would. I, I, think, I think I would use that to say, I am special in the eyes of God. But Paul never even mentions it. 14 years go by and he doesn't say anything. The only thing that brings him to this point is because all of these others are making up all of these false revelations and false visions and they're giving special credence to these. And Paul says, you've brought me to this point. I have no choice. I have to tell you what happened here. But he won't even use his name. It's a man in Christ who was caught away. He had refrained For all those years. Paul goes on to say in verse 6. Though if I should wish to boast. I would not be a fool. For I would be speaking the truth. In other words what he's saying is. I don't want to boast. But if I must boast. I'm not foolish in doing so. Because of all I've seen the Lord do. God has done incredible things through me. I'm speaking the truth. But the point here, I think, that that he wants us to see in these first six verses, six and a half verses, is that there is no point in boasting. Paul here is reluctant to boast. He's so reluctant that he won't even call himself by name. And his point is summed up in the very first verse when he says, I must go on boasting, but there is no point in it. There is no profit in it. There is no gain in it whatsoever. And you and I, when we go through this life, we need to understand, we need to come to this place where we realize that there is none of us who has special position with God. I stood here at the front of of the sanctuary this morning with a man, and I prayed and I thanked God that the ground at the foot of the cross was completely level, that none of us in this room who have received Christ as our Savior, none of us have any rank above anybody else. That we are brought to God through the merits of Christ. I loved what what Greg said this morning. That God loved us. Not because there was something good in us. But because He loved us, there is something good in us. That's good. 
And Paul here says he wants us to get it right from the bat before he ever moves on to the afflictions and the trials and the suffering that there is no point in boasting because we are all, we are all complete only in Christ. So then, secondly, if boasting is pointless, even if it's well-founded, he goes on and he points out that boasting robs God and deceives listeners. Boasting robs God and it deceives listeners. In the second part of verse 6, look what it says. Even though I could say all of this and I wouldn't be foolish to do so, he says, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. What Paul is saying here, the reason I haven't said anything about it for 14 years is because you don't need to have your eyes on me. You don't need to see me as more than I am. You don't need to see God as less than he is. You need to see God in all of his glory through the work of Christ. The word particularly refrain there, when he says, I have refrained from this, I refrain from this. That word struck me as I studied this. It is an active verb that implies conscientious obedience. You don't refrain someone else. Anybody been pulled over by a police officer and have the police officer walk up to your window and say, uh, sir, do you know why I refrained you today? No, he comes up and he says, do you know why I pulled you over? Do you know why I stopped you? You don't refrain someone else. You refrain yourself. You refrain yourself. You refrain yourself from something that you want to do. Anybody ever had to refrain yourself from comment? Oh, in that moment, you wanted to say it. But you refrained and you were wise in doing so. Anybody ever had to refrain from dessert? You wanted dessert in that moment, but you refrained from it. And that's the picture Paul has for us here, is that when this happened 14 years ago, all he wanted to do was talk about it. Can you imagine? I've had life-altering Things happen in my life, and the first thing I want to do is tell somebody about it. I mean, major things happen. We want to tell somebody. And Paul here says, I wanted to tell somebody so bad, but I refrained because it wasn't about me. What he's he's saying is, you need to see God in all of His glory. You don't need to see me in all of my sinfulness and think that I am more than I really am. I am nothing more than a sinner who has been saved by grace. And oh, all that I have to the work of Jesus Christ, His blood shed for me on Calvary, Him being raised from the dead, Him knocking me off my horse on the road to Damascus, Him blinding me and then opening my eyes, Him changing my name from Saul to Paul, Him putting me in His service to serve in His kingdom, Him commissioning me to plant churches and to write 13 books of our New Testament. Paul here says, it's not about me. It's not about you thinking that I have special favor or special position with God. It is not about you getting your eyes on, Paul, you should write a book. Paul went on to write a book, but he never used his own experience to glorify himself. One of the greatest doctrinal treatments of the gospel itself was written by Paul in the book of Romans. Galatians. I mean, all of these books that were written when he was in prison and other places. I mean, 
this is a man who gets and understands, and we see this because he took it all the way to his death, that it was not about him. It was never about him. It was always about living for the glory of God and not robbing God of his glory. Don't see me for anything more than what you see in me and what you hear from me. When you watch a person and you listen to a person, it will not take long before they disappoint you. I mean, it just won't. You, I've said things, <laughs> multiple things. I said something a couple of weeks ago in a sermon that I, I got home. I actually got in the car and I asked my wife. And she said, yeah, that was not in real good taste. And, uh, and I, I've repented of that. I made a comment in a sermon about, um, uh, about us like we were those on the short bus. And when I said it, I, it, it hit me. Hit me like a ton of bricks. And I thought, how, how dare I? But the reality is, all of us will let all of us down sooner or later. And that's why Paul here says, I say nothing about it. I don't want to boast. I don't want you to see me for anything more than what I really am. It's good that sometimes I say things like that because then you go, yeah, that's what I thought. I thought that's who he really was. Because the reality is, that really is who I am. Third, he goes through this, we go through this text, and boasting is pointless even when it is well-founded. Boasting robs God and deceives listeners. And then third, God will not allow boasting even if, it, even if he has to wound you. The reason he won't allow boasting is because if boasting robs him of his glory and deceives listeners, then he will not allow boasting even if he has to wound you. Look at what he says in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited. I mean, wouldn't you be tempted to become conceited? Hi, I'm Paul. I've been to heaven. You know, I mean, wouldn't you? We name drop when we happen to know somebody famous or a little bit powerful. You know, hey, I was in the presence of God, you know. I mean, wouldn't you be conceited? And he says here, to keep me becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of, greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. I want you to notice two things in the, the language here. Number one, a thorn was given me. The implication there is that it was given to him by God. Don't see this as something that the devil gave to him. The thorn was given to him by God. And then secondly, notice in the language of the text, this thing that was given to him by God was a messenger of Satan. In other words, what this means is that the dagger with which Satan is stabbing you was placed in his hand by God himself. And some at this point would say, and that's supposed to cause me to want to praise him? Because some of you have gone through horrible things. You've gone through things that are harassing you and stabbing you and killing you day in and day out. And all you want to do is get rid of it. 
What we have to remember is that God will not allow boasting even if He has to wound you. This was given to Paul so that he would not become conceited and begin to brag and boast about himself. So that he would not become like these so-called super apostles and gain a following based on his own merit. Fourth tonight I want you to see is that we often beg him to remove the very thing that we need. We often beg him to remove the very thing that we need. Paul here says in verses 8 and 9, three times I pleaded with the Lord that it should leave me. That word pleaded does not mean happenstance, casual conversation. God, hey, God, if you get around to it, just something that's been bothering me. God, would you remove this from my life? And is that the picture here of Paul? No, this is a picture of Paul begging, pleading, God, take this away from me. God, I cannot bear up under this. God, would you remove this from my life? Three times he does this. And then it says that he gets an answer from God. It's reminiscent of Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 41. Don't turn there, just listen. I mean, just listen. Paul says, I pleaded three times. Now, you're going to see who he really sounds like. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Is it enough? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. In, in praying this and in going through this, Paul, probably at the moment, doesn't realize how much he resembles his Savior. How much he resembles his Master. When three times he goes and says, Oh, God, if there's any other way, take this from me. God, all things are possible for you. God, would you remove this thorn from me. And I can hear Paul in those moments saying, but not what I want, God. Whatever your will is for my life. He sounds so much here like his own master, Jesus. And then the answer comes when Paul prays and pleads three different times that, that the thorn will be removed. The answer comes. He said to me, in verse 8, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. In verse 9, actually. My grace is sufficient for you. Those words really, really hit me as I was looking at them. Sometimes the best thing that you can do when you come to a passage in the Word of God, particularly one that is very familiar to you, that you've heard time and time and time again, is to just begin to sit and contemplate and think, what does that actually mean? 
Because oftentimes we've heard it, we've heard it so much that we can quote it, and we quote it in a mindless fashion to where we don't even think about what it means. But here when Paul is so utterly harassed, when he is being stabbed with the weapon that was given to him from God, that Satan kept jabbing him with to keep him from becoming conceited, here he's begging, pleading, God, take this away from me. The answer comes back and says, no, Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. I mean, nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear no. We live in this world of of Christianity in the southeast where everything can be boiled down to bumper stickers. And we talk about unanswered prayers and all this sort of thing. And Garth Brooks writes and sings songs about it. The reality is, this is an answer. And this is not the answer that anyone wants to hear. My grace is sufficient for you. So what does this mean? As I sat and I contemplated and thought, what does this mean? In the context of what's going on, what it means is that in Paul's life, regardless of what this, this thorn was, we don't know exactly what it was, but regardless of what it was, it was sufficient. And what that word sufficient means is not only was it Enough. His grace was enough. It wasn't like God was simply saying, Paul, it's okay. My grace will will get you through. I mean, you're going to barely scrape by, Paul, but it'll get you through. It's not what he's saying here. What he says is, my grace is sufficient for you. What it means is, not only is it enough, but it is perfect. The reality is, the hard teaching here, that I struggle to even put on paper and say to you tonight is that whatever comes your way comes from the hands of a loving Father who is conforming you to the image of Christ. And whatever comes your way, regardless of how hard it is, and this sounds like easy preachers speak up here, but it's really not. But whatever it is, is perfect. Do we, do we understand that? Do we believe that? Or do we get to those hard times and say, God, I thought you loved me. God, how could you be good and let this happen? My grace is sufficient. It's perfect for you, Paul. For my power is made perfect in weakness. As long as we continue to struggle against the thorn, then we will continue to be the victim. Powerless and defeated. And there are so many people. I, I, I'm, mm, the longer I pastor and the longer I live, I'm convinced that there's a whole lot of professing Christians whose faith is only as deep as the absence of their suffering. And what I long for as your pastor, what I long for in my own life, is that my faith would go deep. My faith would go so, so deep that regardless of what comes my way, I would say, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. My God's in the heavens, He can do whatever He pleases. And I'll just be transparent. I don't know that I'm there. 
I couldn't imagine being Matt Chandler and pastoring this one of the fastest growing mega churches in America and having a wonderful family and right around Thanksgiving all of a sudden you put your baby daughter down and uh, you turn to walk back to your chair and you fall on the floor with a grand mal seizure same age as I am he's 36 years old because he has a tumor on his brain that will probably eventually take his life I don't know what I would do if I went through that. I pray that I would, I would have the grace, and I think, I think what I would find is that in that moment, God's grace would be sufficient in that moment, and I think that's what Matt Chandler found, is there's been, there's been very few other examples of suffering well like Matt Chandler has. His family has grown through this. His church has grown through this. He doesn't, right now he's doing well, but doesn't know what the future holds. He's going to pastor as long as he possibly can. But as your pastor, I don't know. But I pray for you and I pray for me that we would get to that place where our faith is so rock solid and so deep that whatever comes our way. Another example, David Platt. David Platt lived in New Orleans. He was a teacher at New Orleans Seminary. He lived there when Katrina happened. He lived there, and uh, they were used to, he writes about this in Radical Together. I would encourage anyone to get that book and read Radical Together. I read it this week and, and just challenged all over the place. But he, they, they were used to getting hurricane warnings, and they would have to leave town for a few days and then come back in. Well, they left town for a few days, and uh, then Katrina hit. And he said they were gathered together in a shelter, makeshift shelter, with all sorts of people that had been displaced. They found themselves ministering there, and then they were watching on TV. And as they watched on TV, they saw the helicopters go over, and they said, you know, hey, that, that's the gas station that's close to our neighborhood. And then they said, look, that, that's our neighborhood. And then he says they realized that there was a rooftop that was their rooftop. When they left, they had no idea that they wouldn't be able to go back. But when they came back, everything that they had was gone. Completely gone. And he says today, that was the one thing that spurred him on to where he is today. And he and his wife came to the point where they, they said, they prayed this prayer to themselves. God, we put our lives in front of the levee. And we ask that you would break the levee and wash away everything that we have so that we would depend on you and you alone. Can you pray that prayer? My power is made perfect in weakness. We will continue to be defeated and the victim if we continue to fight against these thorns. But when we realize that everything is from the sovereign hands of a loving God who will not share his glory with anybody and lastly, our wounds and weaknesses become the platform for His glory and His power alone. Our wounds and weaknesses become the platform for His glory and power alone. He says in verses 9 and 10, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest for, upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If people are really dying and going to a real hell, 
then our comfort is trivial. Not just our comfort of possessions or relationships or happiness, but even our very lives. Well, I struggled to write these next ones down, but just listen. I had to do some real soul searching myself, and I had to, I had to ask myself, am I at this point? Are we at the point where we could say, Lord, if cancer would be a platform for your glory and your power to be seen in my life, then give me cancer. If more men and women would be around your throne one day because the strength that sustains through tragedy then afflicts me with tragedy. God, if I would depend on you more without wealth and possessions, then make me poor. Some of you right now are in your minds thinking, I don't think we should talk like that. I don't think we should pray like that. And I don't think we should pray like that either. I don't think we should pray, God, make me poor, give me cancer, give me tragedy. I don't think we should pray those things. But I pray that we would be able to. My prayer is for you. Not that tragedy hits your life or cancer hits your life or poverty hit your life. But my prayer for your life and particularly for mine increasingly in the days that I walk in is that, that I would be able to say less and less and less, God, would you make me happy? God, would you keep me healthy? God, would you make me wealthy? God, would you make me popular? I pray that increasingly that I would get my eyes off of those things and I would get my eyes on His glory and I would also get my eyes on the 6.8 billion people in the world. That I would get my eyes on the 11,000 people groups in the world, 6,000 of them of which have little or no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would quit worrying about what's for supper tonight. And the temperature of the AC in the living room. And where we will go on vacation and what we will do and this and that. Oh God, would you do whatever it takes to make us utterly and completely dependent on you? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we wrestle with hard things tonight. We come up against things that are just so contrary to our very nature. We come up against the very DNA of who we are. I go back to Paul's word, God. He had to refrain from speaking of this and boasting so that your glory would not be stolen away. God, we have people all around us that are going through very, very serious things. God, I pray that you would use those things as a platform for your power and your glory. God, I pray that in my life, God, that you would lead me to pray increasingly. Do whatever you need to do in my life to get glory 
and to show yourself strong. God, in the life of this church, God, I pray that you would do whatever you need to do, whatever it takes, to make us utterly dependent on you, to bring us to the point where you are our absolute, not just greatest treasure, but God, really our only treasure. God, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would sustain us and God, that you would help us in our weakness. God, we want to believe, but God, the flesh is weak. So God, we pray that you would help our unbelief even in these hard, terrible times. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night.